This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. As we told you yesterday, the uh, report that uh, city staff have done about LRT will go before city council later on. And Paul Johnson yesterday, who is the uh, the guy, the lead man, of course, for the city staff on this uh, LRT project, uh, says that he needs council to give them a thumbs up on the plan, what they have so far anyway, so that they can present that to the provincial government and get their approval, and on we go with the project. Uh, that may or may not be a, a, something that's going to happen quickly, uh, simply because of the, the concern a lot of people on city council have, including Councillor Terry Whitehead, who is now calling for an audit on the LRT project for Hamilton and intends to bring that motion forward at that LRT meeting, which is going to be happening on the 28th. Uh, Councillor Terry Whitehead joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on that. Terry, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Once again, Bill, it's great to be with you and your listeners. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you're uh, you're looking at doing in the motion and why. Oh, wow. Um, it goes back right to day one. Um, when we take a look at the, uh, the the process that was embarked on to arrive at whatever decision, uh, it wasn't done in um, a comprehensive, merit-based way. Uh, so, for example, EAs, you have an obligation to apply the same standard and uh, and comprehensive research to make a determination and rule out options. We didn't follow that standard. Now, uh, as we move towards this uh, term of council, uh, we get a number of reports uh, for the last year and a half, two years, and in those reports, it's either awful sloppy or... Uh, a complete bias in in the context of the many reports that we've received. How so? How, how do you mean bias, Terry? How do you mean bias? Let me get well sloppy. Sloppy. When I say bias, I'm talking about there's a term called unconscious bias. Harvard University done this uh, uh, research and study in regards to the bureaucracy and, and consultants that they have to compensate for it. So it does exist. When I take a look at the report, let me highlight what I mean. One, uh, the uh, example one, the they put a chart up and they uh, identified three cities with very successful LRTs, and that's what we read. When you look at the actual chart and the research they pulled it from, you realize that the other balance of those cities on the same chart were uh, 40 to 50 cent below ridership projections. So the only three successful ones is what we got to see, not all the rest that failed. Now, the other thing is on the three that succeeded, they went from destination location to destination location. They had park and ride. So we st- rider, they already had predetermined riderships. When you when you start looking at the analysis, it, it feels like we were sort of dragged down uh, the, the garden path, so to speak. Now, another example. Uh, when you look at cost uh, in another uh, report, $0.45 cents cost per passenger on the LRT system. Bill, I challenge you and your listeners to look across North America, and you tell me where you can find that cost. Uh, the most recent one that I looked at was uh, Portland, Oregon, which is a very robust system, and it's over three dollars cost per three three twenty two cost per passenger on the LRT system. Uh, when I talked to uh, uh, MetroLink and looked at the report, we asked we talked about the fact that Main Street was selected, or sorry, King Street was selected over Main Street. They've indicated that the uh, uplift is a wash, so that so that's not no longer an argument. Uh, we know that King Street's 500 meters longer. That's a $30 million cost. We know that you have to build a bridge on King Street. That's another $35 million. And yet we haven't done the real due diligence on Main Street. Main Street uh, is 500 meters shorter. So clearly you save $30 million right there. Then there might be another uh, opportunity for savings on the bridge. When I mentioned that to MetroLink, uh, they come back and say, well, Councillor, we talked to MTO and they don't want to lose two east because uh, they w- they don't want to lose two eastbound lanes on Main Street. When I look, pull out their own report, it says that Main Street should be converted to two-way, which would mean that you would least, uh, um, lose two eastbound lanes. So this kind of inconsistency, Bill, this kind of uh, uh, sloppiness and reporting, and we're supposed to make informed decisions, it's concerning. All right, so uh, what you're asserting here, basically, is that you you, you feel as councils being duped by staff or by Metrolinks. I mean, obviously, you, you're suggesting here that, that you're getting incorrect information or half information when it comes to some of these things, trying to influence council's decision. Where's that coming from? Is it your staff or is it the people in Toronto? Uh, well, I think uh, uh, I think majority of it is from uh, Metrolinks. I think there's some uh, staff, and when I say duped, let's be clear. I'm not suggesting for a moment 
that there's anything done in bad faith here. What I am suggesting, though, is that uh, human nature being human nature and, uh, and uh, cognitive bias coming into play, I believe that uh, the, the people working on this project are excited about making the project happen and may have leaned in regards to cherry-picking uh, information to try and uh, get council support. And is it working? Well, I mean, uh, right now I can tell you that uh, there's at least nine councillors, if not ten, that have real concerns. Um, I can tell you that only, I think only five or six have actually committed. So uh, that's where it stands today. So is it working? The problem is, is we are in a box right now. Uh, we're in the box until we, for example, the environmental report is coming forward. I don't suspect, now I could be wrong, um, that it's going to get uh, uh, held up. Uh, I believe that it's going to be passed. I think the real test in time will probably be the operating maintenance agreement. When taxpayers realize for 11-kilometer stretch that this LRT system will uh, equate to our almost our cost of our total levy to transit conventional system in the city of Hamilton, and it could equate to about 2 and 2.5% taxes for that 11-kilometer stretch, then I think reality will set in. All right, but from what you've just talked to us about here and some of the concerns, and, and these these are not new. You've talked to us about this in the past, and you've been concerned about, about the King Street versus Main Street thing. We, we get all that. But if, but if, in fact, council starts to move in the direction which you seem to want to take it right now, we're going right back to square one. Can we really afford to do that? Or is, 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 is that the intent here, to just throw this plan out altogether and start for the fresh, uh, clean sheet of paper? Well, actually, the, the Auditor General, uh, the, the reason for that motion is because uh, uh, he looked in Toronto, and I looked at um, uh, a staff report that uh, uh, was being challenged and, and, and uh, sent back to, they had their own, to their Toronto Act, had their own auditor, and uh, it was being investigated by their auditor in Toronto. I thought, what a, a novel idea. Uh, you get uh, reports that aren't uh, reflecting accurately or sloppily written or uh, bringing you down. So th- let's be clear. Uh, in Toronto right now, there's an investigation of staff inflating numbers. So it's not like it doesn't happen. But you, so yeah, right I, listen, I, we know what happens. happens. Okay, but, you, but what you're saying specifically, though, you say it's happening here in Hamilton. And I want to know well, who do you think is responsible no, no, no for it. No question that uh, I feel, and I'm sure other councillors feel, but I can't speak on their behalf, that uh, uh, some of these reports uh, clearly are trying to make a, a case with uh, cherry-picked, uh, uh, very optimistic uh, um, uh, numbers. And I think that's concerning because at the end of the day, there's only one taxpayer, and they would be at risk if we don't get it, get this right. There are people, there are some people, you know this is going to happen, Terry, that are simply going to say, look, this is just a, the councillor's attempt to try to drag his feet on this. You're just trying to delay this. You're just trying to kill this project. This is not about fiscal responsibility. It's about trying to kill LRT. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, I think these people are in fear of the, the message. I think that these people, and I know uh, people like Graham Crawford who contacts you on a regular basis or Ryan McGrill. I mean, it's interesting, Bill, when I look at the media, uh, the, pe- the go-to people, and, you know, we've got a population of 520,000 people. majority of people live outside the downtown. But yet the people that get interviewed most frequently on the radio or on, on, on the Spectator or God knows uh, wherever are people from downtown on the issues that affect us all. And it's concerning that, uh, just like in the States, when you have all the media on the East Coast, you've got all the media on the West Coast, and the middle, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, residents and taxpayers, their views and their values aren't being presented in the media. I'm looking at this, and I said, what the heck's going on in Hamilton? We've got a huge population. We, I know through the emails and contacts I receive, there's a significant concern about the LRT, and yet the only people that get interviewed in regards to resident experts, so, so to speak, are people like Graham Crawford and Ryan McGrill. Help me understand why the balance of the views of this community are not being represented in the media. Terry, I have an open line radio show here, and anybody from the city can call, when, and they're going to in a few minutes when I finish this conversation with you. Uh, and, and listen, hey, you're not living downtown. I have you on the show on a regular basis. I have Chad Collins on the show on a regular basis. Yeah. I think that's, that's a rather skewed opinion to suggest that, that we're trying to slam things. I bring people many, on here to... How many independent citizens have you had on your radio show? Anybody uh, who wants to come on and can talk about it when I open the lines up, Terry. Anybody, including you, including the other counselors on the mountain. And as you probably know, and as I've told my listeners many times, an awful lot of your council colleagues don't return phone calls, so I don't put them on. Would you afford them 20 minutes like Ryan McGrill? 
or, or Graham Crawford. I'm trying to understand, Bill, and I'm not blaming you. Uh, I think this is an issue. Oh, sure you are. I'm hoping me to realize is that there's more people in this community that have real concerns and are not supportive of LRT, and they don't all live downtown. I, that's fine. And then they're invited to come out and talk about this anytime they want. And so is Graham Crawford, so is Terry Whitehead, so is Tom Jackson, so is anybody else. Yeah, the, the, but but now you're calling into question. You're calling into question the integrity of city staff. Maybe maybe there's other points of view that we need to bring to this table, or different people to talk about their points of view relative to this topic matter. Why are you looking for support for your your position here? Is that what you're trying to do? No, no, I don't need to look for support, Bill. Seventy over seventy five percent of my community don't support LRT. I don't need to look for support. I mean, this is the fallacy in this community. So you're, you're trying to kill the project, then? That's essentially what this is. What, the Auditor General? No, of course not. The Auditor General is, I mean, I made it pretty clear. The Auditor General will look at it, look at best practices, accountability, and ensure uh, that they identify the shortcomings that are within this process so they comply those kind of standards going forward. This is not about delaying or stopping the project. But is there also... A, I mean, it, might be, it, might be a, it might be the speak of Ryan McGrill, but certainly not mine. All right, Ryan McGrill aside, uh, there is also a report today that's suggesting that you also want to introduce a motion asking staff to talk about the possible penalties if, in fact, the project is killed. Is that true? No, well, the uh, I think my, um, I believe Sam Marilla moved a motion to uh, look at what the, uh, the the money spent to date and, and that's committed that we could be exposed to in respect to uh, uh, the project being canceled. And that's not you. No. So there is no motion. You will not be presenting a motion asking for a no, cost I of asked, a, a penalties. I asked a question, I asked a question about uh, um, whether there are contractors that are bidding, how much do they put up for those bids, and what could they potentially lose if they don't get the bid? All right. Andrew Dreschel writes today, the dogged whitehead, that's you, uh, will also be seeking council approval for another idea at 28th meeting. He wants staff to investigate what legal claims the city might face if it decides to dump the light rail project. Is that true? I believe that would be Sam's motion, and, and it might be uh, conflating my issue in regards to contractors. So there, there was two, uh, uh, Councillor Maroon mentioned uh, and, and said he would, uh, in fact, he moved a motion on the uh, getting the cost uh, impacts if the project's cancelled. And I said I would be coming for. I'd be requesting uh, the same type of information when it comes to uh, contractors and bidders in respect to uh, how much money are they putting up front before the, uh, any decision is made in regards to the contract. So it might be a bit conflated. I'm not clear on that point. All right. Well, I'm just telling you what I read in the paper today. So yeah. obviously, uh, it, it, that may well be the case. I get that. But uh, but you still have some concerns about cost. Now, you're going to present this motion. Have you had any discussion at all with the auditor's office to, as to whether or not Ms. Lissick will actually take this project on? Well, I mean, like everything, uh, they will consider uh, uh, the, uh, the request. They have their own work plan. Um, they've already found uh, Metrolink's uh, um, wanting in a number of regards. Uh, so it wouldn't be the first time that she's looked into Metrolink. Uh, I would think that uh, when she's looking at billions of dollars of taxpayers' money uh, floating into communities, uh, and by the way, Bill, when I got where this all started, the genesis of this is I was talking to uh, the, this woman, this consultant from uh, federal, not consultant, uh, employee from uh, the Federal Treasury Reserve who fund major projects across the United States, uh, and I'm talking higher level transit. She had, had indicated that one of the challenges is that uh, when um, you know big com- governments come in and said, "Here's an opportunity for money to build higher order transit," municipalities just reach and, and, and reach and grab for it, but there's no metrics, there's no business cases, there's no real standards that are applying, and that's why some of these uh, uh, um, projects are having real challenges. So I want to ensure that whatever we learn from this process moving forward, that there are standards, there are business cases, there is accountability. Uh, to ensure that the taxpayers of the province and the city of Hamilton are getting best value for these these expenditures. All right, but here's here's a, an interesting twist to this. Okay, we're I, I don't want to suggest we're getting into the short strokes. I mean, I had the discussion with Paul Johnson yesterday, and I'm sure you've had a look at the report that he's talked about. It's 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 pretty lengthy as as we talked about yeah. on the program yesterday. Why now, though, Terry? I mean, this this is a file that's been in front of you um, by you. I mean, council, not just you, but all all of you and the council colleagues. For, for years now, really, why now are you concerned about fiscal responsibility? Why didn't you uh, blow the whistle on this a year and a half ago? Why, it it, it seems as if this is kind of a Hail Mary attempt at the last minute to try to derail yeah, the project. 
you've been saying this, and, and I, I don't know if that was an, um, from your own thought or from an email, but I appreciate the question. The the issue here, Bill, is always means. I mean, I don't know why people said Terry all of a sudden woke up on this issue. I mean, that's incredibly naive, and they haven't necessarily been following uh, the the calls I've been putting out from day almost day basically day one. Uh, show me the ridership. Show me the operating agreement. I mean, I've been screaming about concerns for costs from day one. So for people to suggest that it hasn't been the case, have been following this file. I'm not suggesting that you haven't been questioning things. I've been questioning things, too. I, I mean, I've asked, I've asked the mayor, I've asked Paul Johnson, I said, show me the report that says that King Street's better than Maine. Uh, there's, there's nothing really of any substance to do that. And so that, I don't think anybody's blindly following this and just saying, hey, this is sensational. Boy, I can hardly wait to get this thing started. You need to ask questions about this. But but I'm not so sure that this is the time to be doing this at this stage right now. And, and I'm thinking that, you know, at, at some point, somebody probably should have asked these questions a year ago. Well, they, they were asked, uh, Bill. They, we still, uh, we're still waiting for the answers. That's the problem. And you're not getting any answers from staff on this? Quality. Uh, on those reports, by the way, I have asked those questions. In fact, I gave you the answers that Metrolinks gave me, such as, well, the MTO doesn't want to lose two eastbound lanes. I asked the questions. I got the answers. I wasn't happy with the fact that they were putting these things in report. And to me, that's slop- either sloppy or, uh, or certainly a, a bias. I mean, I'm not sure what's going on, but you can't have that many reports or that many mistakes and sit back and think that this is clean. All right, listen, i got about 30 seconds left here before we have to do a break. Uh, Paul Johnson yesterday told us that it, he wants council to approve this, give this thing a thumbs up on the 28th so we can move this forward. Uh, is that going to happen on the 28th, or is this going to be delayed until you get some answers on this? Yeah, and I want to be clear that, uh, because, again, there seems to be some conflation here. First of all, the auditor request is independent from us moving forward uh, with whatever process is laid out for the LRT in the city of Hamilton. They're completely, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're completely independent from each other, and one doesn't affect the other in any way. So for your listeners and anyone else that wants to know, that's the case. As far as the environmental assessment uh, agreement, you know, there are some concerns and issues with it. I suspect... Uh, uh, that it's going to pass. I don't see any delay on that. So I'm not sure what the fear is. Things are moving forward. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A local uh, HVAC uh, subcontractor that worked on the construction of Tim Horton Field is concerned over reports that the city is prepared to settle their legal action against uh, one of the contractors, Canadian Construction, uh, one of the general contractors. You remember about a week and a half or so ago, uh, that company made a public apology and said, yeah, we messed up. Sorry about that. And uh, we were told at that time that they were close to a deal to try to settle some of the concerns. You know, everybody's suing everybody else that was involved in the project, right? Uh, and and they're trying to get some resolution to that. Well, uh, this uh, local subcontractor, Lancaster, has yet to receive full payment from the uh, the other contractor. And are calling on counselors to ensure that all the subcontractors, subcontractors rather get paid in full. I mean, it's one thing to say you accept their apology, but I mean, you got to think there's a legal and a financial responsibility. Greg Crawford is the Vice President of Operations at the Lancaster Group, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Greg, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about your predicament and your situation with your company right now and, uh, and where you stand. Well, I think, um, you know, we've been very clear that, you know, we've been dealing through uh, the court process for about two years now uh, with ONSS, which is made up of uh, Canadian and uh, Weak Canada. Uh, so we've had our claim in front of the courts for over two years now, and then we hear just in the news last week that, you know, the city and uh, Canadian or ONSS is about to uh, meet some or make some resolution on their particular claims uh, with one another. And we're kind of bogged down by a court process that here in Canada doesn't really deal quickly with dispute resolution in, in uh, contracts, uh, construction contracts in particular. Because when that story came out, uh, I and probably a lot of other people, Greg, assume that meant that everybody's going to get looked after here. That you know, When you say a deal is imminent and there's so many different parties involved in this, the insinuation there is that, yeah, okay, we've, we've come up with a figure uh, uh, for your company, for that company, for this one, et cetera, et cetera. But apparently it sounds like that's not the case at all. Yeah, that's that's why we chose now to raise our hands. I mean, again, we're following the court process. We understand it's onerous. 
but when statements are made that suggest or that would lead one to believe that all items have been resolved, uh, and they're not in our case, we just want, you know, the public of Hamilton to understand that. We want the Council of Hamilton to understand that so that when they're making their decisions, when they're having discussions with Canadian and that they're not making uh, decisions based on inaccurate information. How did you guys get involved in this project in the first place? Your company that's been around for a long time since, what, the mid-50s, I think, aren't you? Yes, we are, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, you know, we're a proud Hamilton company. Bill, we've, uh, you know, we, we looked at these projects. We were excited when the Pan Am Games were announced for uh, the Toronto-Hamilton area. Uh, we certainly felt that uh, it was a, a great venue to showcase our talents, uh, to get out there in the construction world, to to, to put the Lancaster marquee up on the biggest and brightest uh, construction uh, venture in the city in a long time. So, you know, like every other uh, sheet metal contractor in the city, we, we looked at this and, and, and we bid it, uh, we put a good tender together. We got in front of the folks at ONSS and we negotiated contracts for uh, three of the three of the projects revolved around the Pan Am uh, Games, and that was the Hamilton uh, Soccer Stadium, the Milton Velodrome, and the York University Stadium. So, the other two projects, uh, were you guys compensated for that? Did you get the money that, out of those projects? Uh, to be clear, part of the monies that we're still seeking, part of the court action that we're still seeking, uh, revolves around all three projects. Okay. Um, the the number being floated around in the press now is not specific to the Hamilton Stadium. It's for all three contracts. Um, all three contracts, uh, you know, when we got into the construction phase, we realized that all of these contracts were going uh, well over their ex- uh, originally expected durations. Uh, we contacted our client, which was ONSS, and we told them we have grave concerns about where these contracts are headed and the length it's taking to complete them. And we asked them to deal with us on contract extensions and efficiencies and all the delays that we were encountering. They asked us, they came back and asked us if we would wait until everything washed out and they would treat all three contracts as a whole. Uh, We would look at, you know, they didn't want us making millions of dollars on one and losing million dollars on the other and and them washing out. So we agreed in principle to talk about all three contracts at the end. And so our, our court action now is based on all three contracts. Where are you with the negotiations? I mean, and you're you're right. I mean, I've talked to other businesses, of, not necessarily with this project, Greg, but I mean, it, it can be rather tedious to do, do deal through the courts in situations like this. Are you making any progress at all? It's it's cumbersome. It's not an easy process. There are loopholes. There are, you know, multiple documents that have to be completed. They have to be completed accurately. Uh, we have to petition the courts to have all three. Uh, contracts looked at as one lump, uh, one whole, because they happen in different jurisdictions. So there is some loophole, loopholes that we have to dance around. There's some red tape we have to uh, we have to go through. But uh, we're making slow progress. But we believe we believed up until last week that we were making progress. I, I know you can't get into specifics, obviously, since it is before the courts. But I mean. It seems to to a lot of us, Greg, that this is really kind of a, a a black and white issue here. I mean, you did work; you haven't been compensated for it. They owe you money. It's pretty, not much more complicated than that, is it? Um, on on the cusp, no, it's not. But um, again, um, there are base contract monies that are still owed to us. There are holdbacks that are still owed to us. Uh, they issued us change orders for additional scope items that they now refuse to pay. But then there are the issues of uh, being on a contract for 20 months when your original contracted duration was 8 to 10. So we have put forward uh, requests for compensation for the additional uh, spend that we had for project management, supervision, uh, tools and equipment rental, the inefficiencies that we felt or that we endured when, you know, we were working out a sequence, when we were working mixed with other trades uh, that made our installations that much difficult, much more difficult after, you know, all these delays presented themselves. So it's not as black and white as it, you know, it sounds in, in press. 
What was it like working on that site? Are, are you guys, as I say, have been doing this for a long, long time, since 1955, and you've been involved in many, many projects all over the place. And uh, yeah. t- I know, I just, well, you know what the impression is in the public about the way this whole thing went. And, and obviously we're looking at the big contractors, and those are the people that you're uh, in court with right now. But, I mean, that, when your crews went in there every day, was was this uh, a business as usual? Was this a, a project that... that that went along the way you expected it to? I mean, it sounds as if you and your crew were getting pretty frustrated as as time went on there, and time went on and on and on and on, really. Well, we did. And, and you know, the, there are frustrations. Uh, there's some highly publicized delays specific to Hamilton with the structural steel and, and the reworkings that were required to bring it up to uh, local codes. That certainly set us back uh, six months. There's a, a life cycle, a process in which you... Uh, build a project like the uh, Pan Am Stadium and you know there's a methodology where certain components go in first. Uh, HVAC components, ductwork are being the biggest, bulkiest, most cumbersome uh, items to put in a stadium typically go in first. You know we we certainly uh, we had to take a lot of that out so that they could do the modifications to the structural steel and then we had to put them back in but when the time frame came for us to put them back in, that was the time frame when other trades were supposed to start. So we had plumbers, we had electricians, you know, we were doing data runs. Everybody was uh, on top of everybody else now because there were some pretty hard, fast uh, dates issued by Infrastructure Ontario to get the uh, projects complete. Uh, they had to be commissioned, you know, well in advance of the Pan Am Games and made sure that they were uh up the stuff and everything was was correct and so you know we're we're all of us were faced with with difficult timelines uh we were delayed significantly and then we were all thrown on top of each other and we all tried to complete our work what about the other two sites similar problems there similar frustrations similar frustrations yeah absolutely there was some structural issues at milton specifically the roof was delayed and going on there was you know, some compaction issues with the soil there that made it difficult for uh, the general contractor to uh, get their footings done correctly, to get the steel erected in time with the original schedule. So again, all those things multiply. You know, when you start late on a project and you're supposed to be the first guy in and then you're working around other trades, it, it is difficult. So and being an HVAC guy, we're typically the first in, but we're also one of the last out because, you know, we have to make sure that the systems work, that their airflow is correct, that in, in, in a situation like the Hamilton Stadium, that all the kitchen uh, venting and exhaust was done correctly and that all the all the all of that was up to speed and um, and working correctly. But when we see some of the problems that uh, that have resulted, and some of them were obvious, I mean, speakers falling down off and, and things of this nature, uh, and we talked to some of the city staff that did some inspections on that stuff after, Greg, there were some serious questions raised about the quality of work that was being done there and whether or not, frankly, some of the contractors uh, had any idea what they were doing there, too. Did, did, did you guys get that sense, too, as you watched what was going on around you? Um, you know... That's not for us to comment. We we felt that everybody there was trying to do their best. It was it was a difficult site. It wasn't, you know, the schedule wasn't managed. It wasn't stayed on top of, you know, and uh, again, everybody was trying to meet that those end dates to meet the June two thousand and fourteen. So, you know, a lot of the guys that worked there were local. Uh, there was a lot of local contractors involved. I think everybody understood the importance of the of the stadium to the city of Hamilton I think everybody did the best job they could recognizing that again it's trade upon trade it's uh, jumping back and forth from work phase to work phase as priorities heated up and you know I'm not here to say that anybody didn't do a good job because despite the speaker falling, you know, I've spent many days in there watching many a Ticat game, and I'm still at awe. I think it's a fantastic facility. I think the city of Hampton should be proud of it. Oh, I do too. Yeah, we're season ticket holders, and I mean, I love the stadium. Uh, I've just heard a lot of stories, and even during the construction, I mean, the odd time that we were able to reach out to, for instance, to Infrastructure Ontario, 
uh, they were frustrated. And there was an awful lot of finger pointing going on during that whole process about, well, that's somebody. I mean, you know, and, and the question everybody was asking here, well, where does the buck stop here? I mean, somebody ultimately has to have the, the say on how this thing is being run. And, and there were a lot of questions yeah. about who was calling the shots there. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's the snowball effect, right? Like, is it the uh, town that gets wiped out at the bottom of the hill that, that started the problem, or is it the snowball, that first uh, bit of snow that started rolling downhill? And, you know, when you delay a project as significantly as you did Hamilton with structural steel issues, you know, that town at the, at the bottom got wiped out. And that's exactly what happened here. What are you looking for from council at this stage, Greg? You know what? We just think it's important that they understand that not all of the issues have been resolved. The statement was that now that all the issues have been resolved, uh, we can we can clear our way with the city and we can come to a resolution. Um, you know, through our through our discussions over the last few days here, it's clear to some of the council members that they didn't that they were not aware that there were still issues with. Uh, Lancaster. Uh, they were not aware that we still have liens on the Hamilton property, uh, properly registered liens on the property, and uh, you know they're they're surprised that uh, that we're still in the situation we are. So our goal, Lancaster's goal, simply is to tell our story and, to, and just to say, as you're making your decisions, as you're reaching agreements with these people, understand that not everybody has, and not everybody has been given the opportunity to do so. So, you, you, I'm not looking for them to intercede here. You just want them to be aware of what's happening and, and not sign off on anything until at least. It, well, I'm, I'm sure if, if you're in this situation uh, with Lancaster, I got to assume that that there are probably some other subcontractors that are in a very similar situation as well. There may be, Bill, but you know we made a decision not to involve ourselves with with the other contractors. If they are, we're not part of a. Uh, a group claim with them. Um, you know, we believe in the merits of our own situation, and and we made a decision just to to fight our fight. You know, albeit quietly for for the longest time, uh, but we did it alone, uh, and we did it with purpose. Did you hear the same stories that we did a week or so ago that that, that there was a, a a solution, an imminent solution to this to this legal battle that's been going on? Yep, yeah, absolutely, and that's what prompted us to speak out. So, and I'm just wondering where that came from. There, obviously, I mean, you know, the, the folks that uh, at Canada are, are going on like this right now, as if uh, you know, the apology is going to be off. But with, but I haven't heard very much conversation at all about the financial end of this thing. No, we've heard nothing. Just other than that, uh, a settlement is imminent, and uh, you know, typically they wouldn't disclose that to us or to anybody else for that matter. But. You know, it, it is that suggestion that everything is now fine and dandy and that we're going to reach this decision. And, you know, the certain companies are hoping that that action will allow them to start bidding work in Hamilton again. And there is some significant work in Hamilton that we're all aware of down at the Woodward Water Treatment Plant mm-hmm. that some of these guys want to get, want to be a part of. And we understand that. You know, we want to be a part of it too. It, it's, you know, again, it's it's great Hamilton work. It's local work for our for our workers, and you know, people want to be part of good, profitable work when they can. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Speculation in Ottawa is that uh, the federal government is going to uh, commit some long term funding in the upcoming federal budget that uh, is due to be released, and it's uh, to do with the child care program now. I know last year they talked about that, and they did commit money for it, which uh, hasn't actually started to flow yet. That's supposed to happen imminently, we are told. But uh, it could be another long-term commitment on this. This is a rather interesting topic, and it's a rather controversial topic as well, because federal governments have been uh, reticent uh, to get involved in this. Uh, You may remember in the uh, waning days of uh, Paul Martin's government, uh, back in 2005, there was a debate about uh, a national child care program at that time, uh, of course, that uh, died when the government was defeated and Stephen Harper took over, uh, and there were credits, uh, tax credits that were allowed in this. So this seems to be a different attitude that uh, the government's taking towards this now. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Maureen Dennis, who is a mom of four, parenting expert and founder of WeWelcome.ca, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us her spec, uh, uh, her take on what's going to happen here. Uh, Maureen, first of all, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, good news from the federal government. Are you pleased with this? You know, it's interesting because there's um, there's definitely a need, and I think that, you know, different provinces and things have tried out uh, different systems. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how, it's, um, how it all plays out. 
Well, I mean, you know, when they start talking about money for this, I mean, that's obviously the big thing. I mean, there's going to be a cost involved in this as well. Uh, last year they talked about this. I think they uh, they committed about $400 million uh, toward that. That doesn't even kick in until this fiscal year, obviously. Uh, so we're not sure if this is going to be more money on top of that or if it's going to be graduated funding. We're still kind of in the dark here, aren't we? Yeah, that's what I mean. You know, there's a lot of details. There's always a lot of talk. It's a it's a sore point with parents. Childcare is extremely expensive, um, no matter which route you look. You know, the, I think that you see a lot of parents um, looking to become entrepreneurs and, and try and balance out life in different ways, um, because in many cases, the you know one of the parents' salaries goes entirely towards childcare. Yeah, and that's if you can find a space. If you can find a space, exactly. And if you can't find a space or, you know, then then you start to look at um, options that are less than perfect um, so that either you are, uh, you know, in an unlicensed childcare situation or you're looking to have um, a private nanny, nanny shares, um, you know, there's. There's not there's there's not a lot of choices that are affordable and convenient for families. Um, even daycare can be really challenging when you do have a spot. You know, you've got to you've got to leave work and be there to pick up your child by 6 p.m. Um, or it's a dollar a minute. You know, it's it's a really stressful situation um, where I think the government has at least identified that there is an issue here, um, but I don't think that the plan has enough detail to know whether it's really going to work yet. Is there enough support, I mean, in the general population now, uh, to move forward on something like this, Maureen? I I mentioned back in the early 2000s, around 2003, 2004, uh, there was a great debate about this, and and there was a big split, I thought, among the population as to whether or not this was even something the federal government should be getting involved in. Are we over that yet? Have we cleared that hurdle? Well, I think the challenge is, is that we're kind of doing a little bit everywhere, and it keeps changing. So, you know, we had the universal child care benefits, um, so, you know, with four kids, I would get a couple hundred bucks, um, you know, a couple hundred bucks that, that, that is uh, helpful, I suppose, but, um, it's not, it's not changing. It's not changing to make more spots. It's not allowing me to stay home and, um, care for my child. You know, I think that that's where you really need to look at, um, what the government can do to change the situation, not put a bandaid on it. And now that with, um, you know the the current changes. A lot of families aren't even getting that. Um, it's really it's really a difficult situation for many who are just middle class families who, um, you know, are trying to figure out what's the best way for them to be there for their kids, um, but also keep them safe. I, I heard from a, I remember having the discussion and the debate about that back in those days, uh, and and a lot of concern that I heard from a, a lot of parents at that time was simply look at it's not even worth our while to go to work because the money I'm going to make at my job whatever that job might be is mostly just going to go to ch- childcare anywhere so it's a zero sum game as far as they were concerned how does the exactly. government how That's does the government make it more attractive then you know what I I. I don't, I don't claim to know the math behind it, but if there was a way to be able to compensate parents to, for, you know, they can stay home for a year, you can share the maternity leave, but if there is a way to be able to um, even extend that so that parents are able to um, stay home with their own children and subsidize it that way versus subsidizing more childcare placements, um, I think that that would be something to investigate. Um, there's a lot of parents who, like you said, you know, they're they're just working to pay for childcare, um, and they're not even getting the time with their own kids and to spend that way. So I think there would be a lot of benefits to that. There's also obviously the time out of the workplace um, that are that when people are going back, it can be a challenge. But I think it is that temporary situation where. You know, even with um, junior kindergarten, that window is a small window between um, when the child is born and when they're going off to junior kindergarten. But it doesn't end there. It just is a window that is um, more time that parents have support, children going to school. But, you know, I have uh, my sister and brother-in-law. They both work full-time. Once the kids are done school, they they have to go to before and after care in order to be able that they can go to their jobs. So it still continues up until the child is old enough um, to look after themselves. 
Which again is another question of when is that? Yeah, that's um, that's the other big question, isn't vague, it? A vague question. Uh, well, and but, again, you get into the discussion about latchkey kids, and and you know, is is that really safe, et cetera, et cetera? Is it, right, it's like, a very I complex totally, issue. I totally came home at eight eight years old for two hours on my own, right? Like that that was that was normal. Now I would probably be reported for allowing a child to do that. Um, so it's it, parents are not in the situation where they can. Um, you know, they're, they're, you're judged every second. So those you have to make sure that you are, your child is taken care of. And of course you want to, um, but there's just more pressure to make sure that you have that spot or that, that care. And, you know, not everybody lives by their parents and can, can have kids go to grandma's house or, you know, have that family support. Um, and the village and neighborhoods are just not as connected in most cases as they used to be. So you have to find a professional to do it versus having a village or family to support. Uh, when we finish this conversation and uh, the minister calls you right after this, uh, social service development minister calls you and says, Maureen, I need some assistance here. Uh, how, do, how, how do I develop this? Do you want to see the government run this program or do you just simply want to see them make more money available and let parents make their choices? You know, I would like to see the options laid out very clearly that way. I certainly wouldn't want a program to put in place that um, had more debt incurred by the province or the federal government. Um, it needs to it needs to work. More money needs to be put towards it. Um, and like I said, either that is through a program that actually allows parents to have professional daycare spots in the urban centers that are really, really struggling with that? Or is there an option to be able to really pay parents to stay home and look after their children um, for a longer period of time than the maternity, paternity leave currently given? And I think when people say, oh, wouldn't it so be nice that I could just stay home and look after my kid for two years? You know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's why people pay a lot of money to have somebody look after their child. It's a lot of responsibility, and it's not something um, that people take lightly. So I think the government um, needs to assist in what that um, program options look like, but I think they need to listen to what parents are saying and not just throw out money. Here's a couple hundred bucks, you know, go go away, and, uh, and we'll talk to you in another four or five years. Yeah, that's, that's not necessarily going to create spaces, is it? No, because it's not, it's not helping cover much. It's not creating spaces. It's, it's, you know, it's essentially you're putting a small dent in a big problem. Maureen, thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Uh, go to the website, wewelcome.ca. Uh, interesting stuff on there. We appreciate uh, your efforts and uh, the work that you've done on this. And uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Bye now. Uh, this this is a very complex issue, as we mentioned, and and how the government rolls this out is obviously going to be a key part in this. It's one thing to commit money to it, but uh, you want to make sure that things are going to be working properly. Joining us now to talk about that is Monica Lysak, who is a professor in early childhood leadership at uh, Sheridan College. And uh, first of all, uh, Monica, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Same question. Uh, are, are you pleased to, with the government's announcement? At least it seems imminent anyway, that there's going to be more money available. Yes, I, I think it's, uh, you know, very important. I think that it's been on the table for decades, and Canada just hasn't been able to get it right. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's on the table. I'm glad they're moving forward, and we'll be interested in seeing um, exactly how it unfolds. Well, and therein lies the key, right? The old adage, that right. the, the devil is in the details right now. And it's one thing to allow for money, but uh, how do we create a situation and a system here where actually we're going to see spaces created instead of simply funding the spaces that are already there? Well, you know, child care policy is very complex. And I think that, you know, it's, it's hard for people to understand. So, for example, um, as the government talks about allocating, you know, 500 million, 400 million to the provinces, 100 million to Indigenous childcare. As they talk about about introducing that 400 million, uh, and then, you know, following each year with the same amount of money. The problem is, you can only create a childcare space once, and then you have to continue to operate it with those funds. So it seems, you know, it might sound like a lot of money, but actually you're not getting, you know, you have to keep ramping it up. You have to keep increasing it in order to build a system. So it's true that you may create some spaces in that, you know, in that first year. Um, and then after that, 
you know, it's basically maintaining it. Quebec's had a system in place for quite some time now. Is, is that something that we can use as a, as a building block here, as a, as a foundation? Yes, I think one of the things that's really uh, key to understand about the difference between Quebec childcare and childcare in the rest of Canada is that in Quebec, it's it's really more of a public service. It's really um, less left to the market. And what I mean by that is, um, in in the rest of Canada, childcare um, is it, it mostly is left to parents and communities mm-hmm. to create, and and sometimes businesses will create childcare. Um, but in Quebec, it's planned, it's you know, it's funded more directly, and and it's it's the centers that are funded for the most part. I'm speaking in generalities here, not in in detail, but uh, for the most part, we could say there's more funding directly to the centers as opposed to the parents, um, and I think that's a por- an important distinction. When the funding goes directly to the service, we we call it um, supply side funding. Um, then the services can be created and grow. When it happens, um, you know, through other mechanisms, when parents are given money in one form or another, then it's left, you know, for communities and parents to, to figure out how to put that money into something. And that's how we've ended up with this kind of patchwork system um, where some communities have childcare and other ones don't. Some have really good childcare, others have poor quality childcare. Uh, and so there's inconsistency, you know, all across the country and certainly even community to community within our own province. You talked at the top about how complex this is, and, and I think you've just touched on a couple of the key points here. Uh, if the government does, well, for instance, as you mentioned in Quebec, where they actually fund the institution, uh, as opposed to simply giving the parents a check, uh, that gives them better control over the quality of care, too, and, and the standards that can be set and, and must be adhered to, obviously. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that this government has has flagged, this federal government has talked about gender equality um, on many levels and applying a gender analysis to their budgeting, which means they're looking at how the how the decisions that they make affect men and women maybe in different ways. So childcare seems a pretty critical piece of of gender, you know, gender lens budgeting, um, no matter what you're looking at. And so I think if you know, if we're looking at how how um, women, I guess women in a sense are hit on two different sides. One, we have women in the workforce in childcare who are paid, you know, despite having professional accreditation and having diplomas and degrees, you know, they're paid. Many of them are paid just above minimum wage in, in many cases, and so we have a really low-paid. predominantly female workforce in early childhood. And then we also have the solution to that problem would be for parents to pay higher fees so that, you know, early childhood educators could be paid more. But of course, childcare is already unaffordable for 75% of families um, in the Toronto area. This is, you know, a recent study. Um, So we know that, that parents can't afford to pay more. So the only way to address this is really to have governments step in and, and really address that gap, um, and it's going to have a, a profound effect on on women in the workforce, either positively or negatively, um, both as part of the early childhood workforce sector, but women in all sectors. Well, and that was one of the points I think that was lost in the in the past debates and discussions we've had on a national level about child care, is, is the impact it's having on the workforce. As you say, there are accredited and talented women uh, that it may find it difficult to re-enter the workforce after they have a child simply because they can't find affordable child care for them. And and that basically robs society as, as a whole, really, of, of talented people that should be out there that, that can't get back into the workforce. Absolutely. So not only are we robbed of that talent, but to be perfectly crass, we're also being robbed of their contribution to the tax base. Um, when, when those uh, very talented women and sometimes men um, are are forced to stay home because they don't have childcare available to them. Um, that's not good for for Canada's economic growth. So we want to be sure that you know Canada is doing everything we can to support uh, you know families in their dual role of raising children and being being part of the workforce. 
So you're going down to the bottom line here. This is how you're going to get the federal government to come on side here to show that, hey, you guys could make money from this. Uh, because if we put those people back into the workforce, they're going to pay income tax. That, that'll, get their, is, that'll get their attention. It is true. And there, there is actually a lot of evidence from, from Quebec where, as you mentioned, Bill, they've been doing this um, very effectively for a number of years. And there's, there's some good research about how that has really paid off economically. It's lifted a lot of families out of poverty because when families have good childcare available, especially single parents, when they have good childcare that's affordable and, and that they trust and it's in their neighborhood, um, they go to work and they can support their families. And rather than drawing down on revenues by having, you know, having government support, um, they're contributing to the tax base. So I think looking at that economic argument is important. Um, I, I think for me, it's less important. I know there are, there are people who, for whom it's all about the economics, but for me, it's really, um, you know, about equality uh, for women, and of course, the benefit to children of having uh, good experiences in early childhood. That's that's really important as well. We shouldn't overlook that aspect of it. Monica, do you get any sense at all that, uh, let's assume that they are going to make this announcement next week during the budget. We know that there's going to be money available for this. And, and as you mentioned, the money that was announced last year, it was, starts to, to kick in now in, in 17 and 18, 2017, 2018. Do they have any idea how they want to do this? I mean, I, the biggest frustration we get have here is for the government to say, we're going to put money available for this, but we're going to talk about this for another few years until we can come up with a plan. I mean, this is something that needs to be done yesterday. I agree. And I think, you know, I was um, I was actually with the Child Care Advocacy Association back in 2005 when uh, when we had Ken Dryden and Paul Martin, you know, implementing mm-hmm. a national child care strategy. And um, and so a lot of work has been done. We have uh, we have a really good starting place. Uh, there's there's so much research that has been done. Uh, we can look around the world for excellent policy examples, both of what you know, is good and useful to do, and also some lessons about what not to do. So I, I think it's high time we did get busy and and start moving on it. And I think, um, you know, I think one recommendation I would have for the federal government is to work with the provinces on a workforce strategy, you know, immediately, a national workforce strategy. I think, I think that's something that um, is a priority in all of the provinces, and um, and really is the key to quality um, because of course the interactions with the children um, are are very important and so we have to make sure that we are recruiting and retaining those talented, well-educated people um, in early childhood education and that they're not leaving the sector because of the low wages. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.